Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. What's happening, everybody? Todd Crandall with another Racing for Recovery slash Ignite Euphoria podcast. And I am, I'm going to use the word honored because I'll get back to that. I am honored to have one Mr. Jeff Kopp with us today. How are you, sir? Honored to be here. Good. Uh, that word honor, what does that mean to you? Um, honor to me denotes respect for something or a set of principles. Uh, it means that you're proud to be a part of something. Um, honor to me means that you can say something and um, have respect for what you just said. It's interesting. I when I do these, I they're not scripted. I just let them rip, right? And as soon as I said the word honor, I started thinking of your service to this awesome country, which I and everybody who's watching this appreciate. So us just talking about honor right there. Where did you learn the value of that word initially? Uh, probably in the military. I was a uh, I was a difficult teenager. I was probably a difficult all-ager up until 18 when I joined the military. And until, until I actually saw what it took to make the country what it is, for us to have the rights that we enjoy every day, um, I didn't realize that holding yourself to a certain level of behavior had any importance at all. I just thought that I could act any way that I wanted and everything would just carry on like normal. But it, it takes time for you to realize how people's perception of things also influences the way that they behave. So when I learned how to act, it made my life a lot easier. What else did you learn in the service that helped you? Ah, discipline. I would say discipline helped me. Um, I learned respect for others. I learned responsibility. Uh, there's, there's such a huge responsibility placed on the weight of our service members at such an early age. And many of them, myself included, don't realize the gravity of that responsibility until they're able to look back on it and say, holy crap, like that was a lot for this person at this age. And I can't believe I did that without even batting an eye. So um, I, I learned those things, but then after I got out, I kind of had like Catholic school syndrome, you know, like I was, I was made to adhere to all these rules for so long that when they no longer existed, just kind of lost my mind. Is there... Is there anything that you, and I don't, I'm not looking for great details in this, Jeff. I'm tying that into what we're going to be talking about with Racing for Recovery. I'll say it this way. Are there any emotional hardships that you endured while you were in the service? Um, to be honest, I really didn't go, any, like, go through anything that was incredibly traumatic except for frustration with bureaucracy. But other than that... Um, I didn't have like anyone close to me die. I wasn't in any combat situations. I fixed airplanes. So the most traumatic thing that happened to me was pulling a part off a plane and the warranty expired in like 1976. I was like, people are flying with, okay. Right. Um, <clears throat> okay. There's your sarcasm coming out. So let's, let's shift this into when I first encountered your at, you at Racing for Recovery. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was at a Thursday night meeting when your mom was with you, correct? So let's talk about what, what led you, and this is where you can talk about your backstory a little bit, what led you to having a seat at a Racing for Recovery support group meeting? Um, I mean, honestly, I was in jail. And they came to me and they said, look, we're offering you this avenue to correct something 
that you've done and if you do this we will wipe this off your record that's what put my butt in the seat but i haven't been forced to come here for the last 11 months mm -hmm. and still i come because i found something here like this place brought an understanding to the life that i had been living before and a framework for the life that i wanted to live that i didn't think anybody would ever be able to present to me let's talk about the life you were leading before how did that happen why did that happen so <clears throat> my addiction started honestly if, if an addiction can start mm -hmm. honestly i had an elbow injury uh following the military and i went to the va hospital and instead of um, physical therapy or surgery, they threw Vicodin at it. And um, I was able to renew that prescription without visiting a medical provider or without um, having, having a um, analysis of my elbow done for three years. And then the opioid epidemic started to become mainstream news and they just cut it off cold turkey. One of my friends um, saw what I was going through. It was like 80 degrees outside and I had a hoodie on. He's like, man, what's going on? I'm like, I'm freezing. You know, I was like, I'm sad. I'm tired. I can't get out of bed. He was like, bro, it sounds like you're going through opioid withdrawal. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is, but he introduced me to street opioids, you know, getting them from your street pharmacist. And that's how I started. And in the beginning, I absolutely had it under control or at least didn't affect it like didn't let it affect my finances and taking care of the other areas of my life that i considered an adult obligated to take care of and again you can disclose as much as this as you want do you recall when that shift took place where it did start to get out of control for you i wouldn't say there was um like a hard line that I jumped from one side to the other. But I can definitely say that I started, I started needing them to start off my day. I started needing them to go to bed at night. I started getting withdrawal symptoms four to six hours after taking my last dose of whatever I was taking. Mm -hmm. And that addiction switched from pills and pharmaceuticals to heroin when my addiction started costing 120 150 dollars a day and the people that i was working for had no problem paying me in drugs so that i could keep working number one they knew it made me work harder and number two they bought them for a cheaper price than they were giving them to me to cover a debt for so it was a win-win for them were you, is this back when you were doing carpentry stuff or? Yeah, I, um, when I got out of the military, I started remodeling houses on a regular basis. Uh, I did that honestly for a while, but then the people that I got my drugs from said that they were having houses fixed, fixed up. And I was like, well, that's a win-win, you know, I'll get half of my money from them, half drugs from them. And then I'll just move forward from there. And that's how it, um, I never really had to experience the, like week-long withdrawals that I hear so much about because my hands were my currency. So as long as somebody had a project for me to work on, I had drugs in my system. So for me, that was, that was the ultimate. I was like, yes, you know, like as long as I'm physically able, I never have to put these down. So when we're going back to the, the values you learned in the military, and th these are questions as we're talking, and I've never talked to you about this stuff before. I'm just getting to know you even more than what I, I'm fortunate enough to know already. Back to the military stuff that you acquired, were, was there ever a, a thought in your mind or were you cognizant of those values you had there and as you were maybe losing them, as your addiction was um, escalating or was that not even an issue at all or what was that like? So I definitely had spats of guilt that I would be overcome with. But a lot of them would align with whenever I was going through whatever period of withdrawal I would have to go through. Like I said, the, the withdrawal half-life for a Percocet is much shorter than for heroin. Um, once, for me anyways, it was. It was like four to six hours after I did one, I would start to experience those withdrawal symptoms. 
So if I didn't plan correctly, I would be three o'clock in the morning waking up out of bed and have to wait until eight o'clock in the morning and be up that entire time going through that going through that withdrawal period. Well, when that was happening, there's a, a heightened sadness that I experienced and the world just felt more depressed. So during that period of time, I for sure felt guilt and uh, felt like I betrayed a way of life that did me correct for so long. And when as soon as I would do more drugs, it was like that stuff would go away. I wouldn't feel guilty about anything anymore. During this, that's an interesting mindset that I think everybody who's had addiction can relate to in some capacity. Were you thinking of seeking help of any kind during this time? Did you realize I need help and did you do anything to get it at that time? So I think that um, not until probably like two and a half years ago did I ever consider myself bad enough to need help. And when people around me, um, this like a red flag that should have punched me in the face like a airplane crashing into my head was when the person I got my drugs from was like, you need to go to rehab, man. Like, I don't, I don't even want to sell you drugs anymore. You need to go to rehab. That's, sh that should have been like the reddest of flags, yeah. but I ignored that. And I just kept moving forward. I'm like, no, nah, you just like, you just don't like dealing with me and whatever. So, and like two and a half years ago, I'm living in houses I'm working on, but many of them don't have water. Many of them don't have electricity. And I'm going every day, waking up in the morning, pretty sure that I'm going to eat that day, but not 100% sure. Like, I'm pretty sure that the person I'm working for is going to provide me some food or something in addition to the drugs that I'm having. Don't have any contact with my family. Haven't spoken to my mom in like five years at this point. Haven't seen my daughter in like a year and a half at this point. Uh, not taking care of any of my financial obligations, child support going unpaid, driver's license expired, no vehicle, and absolutely no prospects for a home or a living situation that the average reasonable person would consider palatable. So at that point, I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I need rehab. I need something. But number one, I didn't know what this or any rehab facility was. I knew from a couple of people that I shared my addiction with their stories from it, mm -hmm. their nightmares that they had told me, but I didn't actually know. And I was concerned probably more about the perception of, see, going into rehab for me was an admission that my problem had become untenable. And I didn't want people to have the satisfaction of knowing that I had fallen to that level. So as long as I felt like what I was in the middle of was survivable, I was probably going to keep doing it. Um, I tell people to this day, getting arrested is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And one of, one of the reasons I know that my life was so bad is when I went to jail, when I made it in jail, I was relieved to be there. I was like, this isn't that bad. You know, they're about to feed me. I have a roof over my head and I had been off heroin. I had overdosed on heroin a month before I went to jail and I kept doing other drugs, but that event for me was traumatic enough where I said never again. I was, I woke up in an ambulance, didn't know where I was, didn't know what was going on. The entire seven eighth lower half of my body was completely numb. I was like a head looking at myself. And when I went in the hospital, I don't know if they were giving me something or if what I had in my system wasn't what I thought it actually was, but I didn't experience the withdrawal symptoms that are so famously associated mm -hmm. with heroin. So when I got out of the hospital after five days and my cravings were gone and I didn't have withdrawals, I told myself, I'll just replace that drug with another drug, but screw that drug. That drug made me go through withdrawals and stuff. But if I do this other drug, I'll be all right. And then a couple of days into that, obviously, the same thing, the same things happen. It might not have the grip on you physically, but it has it financially, and it definitely controls your life and keeps you in a hole that you're already in. You, when I was talking to you earlier about um, not having any, like, you know, traumatic or emotional experiences except finding an expired 
date from 1976 or whatever on an airplane. Do you think, or I guess, did you experience any of those emotional hardships during the addiction that were, that had an impact on you? You mentioned not seeing your mom for five years, your daughter for a year. What type of toll did that have on your, on your emotional wellness? So at the time, I felt guilty. And I used to tell myself, I used to tell other people, man, I miss my daughter. Um, I really need to do things to get my family relationships back in order. I need to speak to my mom. I need to do all these things. But I believe at that time, I was speaking to convince other people that I was a good person and maybe convince myself somewhere in the back of my head that I was a good person rather than actually speaking to attempt to bring words to action. So there was guilt but not in the way that i felt guilt when i was faced to confront my issues in this building this is inter- and i'm i keep going back to tying in the the military and addiction and then now we're going to shift into recovery because i'm big on a mindset as you know this whole place is built on you know choices and how we think and feel and again, when I'm looking at the, the military and you talk about honor and the discipline and dedication, that's applicable to us during addiction. And we're good at it. And then when the mindset shifts to where we're going to use that discipline and honor and everything in a productive manner, like the military and like recovery, the whole thing shifts. So let's go back to that Thursday night meeting. And, and, and why I keep bringing this up was the way your mom spoke about you that night in that meeting. I remember sitting there, and I think I, I might have even said this to you at the time, but I remember sitting there thinking, I hope this awesome guy is feeling the passion that his mother has for him. And I, I think I did say something to you about it at that point. Like, are you listening to this lady or whatever? If you didn't hear it, it's because you had that dumb Pittsburgh Steelers sweatshirt on, but we'll let that go for a minute. But, Talk about like what what it was like um, emotionally coming in here and having your mom actually be there as a support system at that time. So my mom brought me up to be a Steelers fan. Oh, so. I, I liked her up <laughs> until this. Um, like, like you, one of the first parallels that I drew with recovery was military service. Hmm. I was like, this is very similar you know you have to remain disciplined to this and you have to respect the process and you have to admit that your way doesn't work to accomplish this goal and another way is necessary um so every single time and i mean it's been it's been a long time i've told this story a lot and i did not want to get mad at you while i was in here but Ah, I will probably cry, and that's that's your fault. Good. I'm, I'm going to blame that on you. Is it easier um, knowing I'm wearing pants like you asked me, though? Yeah, I just wanted to know the comfort level we were supposed to have right. in here. So <laughs> um, when, when I came in here, you know, I had spoken with my mom about this, but a lot of what came out in that room hadn't actually come out to me yet. Uh, it's it's mm. similar to um, when you go to a concert or when you're in a group of people, um, that collective similar energy has an impact on people that is indescribable. You know, you get in a room full of love and you feel the love, you can. And you get in a room full of people that are dedicated to the healing process and all of us, like you just, you get more dedicated than you maybe were individually. And that's why the groups in these places have such power and authority. Yeah. So when my mom started speaking and I heard that stuff come out of her and I had, I mean, I had just done so many shitty things for so long and to hear that she was still right there by my side. I mean, yeah. that if I didn't felt, if I didn't feel guilty before I did then, but it wasn't, it wasn't that she was speaking to make me feel guilty it's just the weight of my actions had all come and pressed on me at that moment because for as angry as i wanted to be 
her love was always there to overcome that rage. Dude. Hey, that's some, uh, that's heavy. And I, again, this is what, when I think of you, I instantly think of that meeting that night. You know, you guys sat right to my left, kind of up in the front or whatever. And I've done, done a few of those Thursday night support group meetings. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is what this whole program is based on. A mother to have an opportunity to come in and help her son who has an opportunity to come in and get a life, which beautiful. Now this is where this is all going to get good. So I'd like to know first where your mindset was at that. Because, and the reason I'm asking you this is there's a lot of people who get forced into doing some type of change. You had mentioned that this was an option while you were incarcerated. Um, talk about the mindset you had. Were you, were you ready to change or were you just looking, hey, this is the quickest way out of here? So, I, like I said earlier, I tell, I tell this story a lot too. Um, when I was in jail, that's when my mom came to visit me. I hadn't spoken to her in five years. And it would have been really easy for her to kick me while she was down. So there's a couple of different parts that brought me here. Number one was my bunkmate while I was in jail. His name is Ray. And to this day, I feel like he was an angel that was put there to steer my life in a direction. Um, the CEO up at the counter said, cop, your mom wants to be put on your visitation list. And without batting an eye, I said, F that. And then I turned around and started to walk back to my bunk. And as soon as I turned around, he was staring right at me going. And I went, what? What did I do? He goes, let that hate in your heart go. He's like, wow. what's the worst she's going to do? Come in here and tell you that you've done wrong. You did do wrong. He's like, hear what she has to say. So I turned around and I said, yeah, put her on the list. And she came and saw me the next day. And she wasn't interested in correcting me for what I had done. She literally came in. Showed me pictures of my daughter, which, oh, like, I, I cry a lot. I'm an emotional dude. Yeah. But, like, one place I did not want to do that was in jail. Yeah. So she's showing me pictures of my daughter. And you don't actually have visitation anymore, like, person to person. You do it on, like a, like, a computer screen. But it's not that far off to the side of the main population. So people can see you. She's showing me my daughter, and all she wants to know is, how can we fix this? What can I do to make this better? And I was like, well, you know, just you being here is making this better. I asked her to put $10 on what's called your books where you get like money for commissary and food and stuff in there. She put $50 on it and um, left. The day before she had, two days before she had arrived, arrived me and another member of this program, Tony, uh, Tony Boyd, Yeah. we were in jail together. And we both turned down the program that they offered us the first time we went up there. But we went back into jail and we were in jail for a week. We started talking to each other. Man, I don't want to do this no more. Like, I don't, I don't want to live on the street anymore. I don't want to struggle for money or meals or love or any of those things. Like, I just want a normal life. So we had mutually agreed. And it's funny, we graduate the same day. We did all this stuff together. We were roommates over in the hotel. Like it just seemed like our paths were destined to meet. And um, we had mutually agreed to do this, to come in here, to take this seriously. So when I got here, my mindset was like any other project that I do, I viewed it like a remodel. I was like, I'm remodeling me, but I'm going to crush this. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to do literally everything that I'm told to do as often as I'm told to do it until I figure this thing out because I knew my way wasn't working. Was I relieved to be in jail? Yeah. Was I blown away that I was in there? Didn't think it would get this bad. Did not think it would get this bad. And one of the markers of how far that I've come is on that day I was relieved to be there. On this day, I would be mortified if go. I was in that building. Yeah. There you go. Wow. Yeah, your uh, buddy, Mr. Boyd, is, uh, well, do I want to say this before he hears this? 
Let's just say he's doing very well to achieve his goal of being here. How about that? As I hear you are as well, and we'll get to that. So let's talk about the transformation of you while you've been at Racing for Recovery. What's it like? What'd you do? What are the results? And where are you going? So when I first got here, I would say that I was very concerned with a couple of things, people pleasing and people's perception of me. And I bring up those two things specifically because in recovery, especially, those are problems. Like, I'm not here to please anybody, and I'm not here to be anybody's friend. Now, I've made friends Mm -hmm. while I'm here, but I take this dead seriously. And when I say that word dead, I mean life or death seriously. Mm -hmm. While I've been here... The people that I've known in active addiction before this and people that I've known that have left this program before they were successfully recovered did not make it, died. And I never want my mom to get that phone call. I never want my daughter or my dad or my grandpa or my girlfriend or anybody that means something to me to have to get that phone call. But that external drive was only a portion of what made me want to do um, what I came in here to do. I wanted to just live. And I always Mm. viewed, I always viewed sobriety as a vessel for a successful life because I didn't want to wake up every day and need a drug to survive. I didn't want to wake up every day and have to hand over my money for something just so that I could function that day. Mm. And I knew that I had the drive, the intelligence and just the overall desire to have a successful life. I just didn't have the mental capacity, like the tools to do that. The way I was doing it wasn't working. So when I came in here, my mindset was, let's figure this, let's let's see what we have to say. I read both books when I got here in a weekend. I read your first book in three days after that weekend because I was starving for the information that I could use for a successful life. The, the, the passion that you are speaking with right now, it's like I, that's what racing for recovery means to me. And just sitting here listening to, I'm like, we think it's not, three words are on our t-shirts, empathy, humility, and gratitude. I'm grateful just to sit and talk to you like this today and listen to the passion coming from you. What, Let's get into specifics. Like, what what is it that Racing for Recovery and the people here showed you that you did that has really helped you be the awesome dude that you are? Um, Number one, I would say find your trauma. And the trauma isn't necessarily, for me, a specific event. It's a collection of events that added up to something that became untenable. Um, Number two is do the things that you're uncomfortable doing. We have a lot of cliches that come out of the rooms in this building, and I'll be one of the people that gives them the most shit that you'll hear walking through the halls, but they're good for a reason. Whatever one sticks, whatever one makes you remember, what that cliche is designed to make you remember is the one that you use. Mm -hmm. And the one that I love the most is nothing changes if nothing changes. If you don't do anything different, you're going to get the same results that you got before. And the other thing was take this seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to share things that are uncomfortable and you have to confront the truth with full fledged honesty. You have to, you have to say things that are actually affecting you before you can develop a plan to mitigate those things to the point where they don't affect you anymore. Hmm. And those were, I mean, it's a thousand things. Um, Empathy was a huge one. I'll never know what it's like to be pregnant. I'll never know what it's like to give birth. But I can tell you from the collection of stories that I've heard from people that have gone through that, that is not cool. It is not (laughs) a pleasant experience. And I do not want to go through that. So just because somebody says something is difficult to them and I might not find that same thing difficult doesn't mean it's not difficult to them. Same thing for me. Another thing that helped me out, another thing that was huge here is 
relatable stories. You know, seeing somebody in a similar situation that's going through something where I'm like, well, if he can, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. And then I tell people the same thing. If I can do it, you can do it. Trust me. I can't juggle. I don't know how. I've never done a Rubik's Cubes without taking the stickers off and putting them back on in the right order. So if I can do this, you can do this. Where did, or when, again, your sarcasm and sense of humor are, they're, it's awesome. When did you, when did that start to come back out in recovery? And did you look at that gift in a different manner? So I was really worried about a couple of things when I started recovery. I write poetry a lot. I write music a lot. And I was worried that without that um, emotional upheaval, I wouldn't be able to write things with the same with the same beauty that I wrote them before. And a couple of people that I talked to had told me, you know, it'll come back in a couple of months. It'll come back. It came back instantly. Awesome. It wasn't. It wasn't ever like. It was just I was relating those situations to what I was writing, but now I'm able to – my writing used to be really dark and negative mm. and angry, but that's just a reflection of the life that I was in the middle of, and now it's not any of those things. I can still write those things if I want to, but the majority of what I put on paper is happy. And with my sense of humor, I've used it as a defense mechanism mm. throughout my life. But I've often, I, I characterize my sense of humor as just seeing things from a different perspective than most people most of the time. Mm. When I look at a situation, um, it's like when I do a remodel or even when I was fixing airplanes in the military or any situation that I approach for that matter. If there's a situation that requires critical thinking, that means you have to look at it from a different angle than perhaps somebody else has already approached it. Well, humor is no different. Right. Humor is taking whatever this situation is and just kind of taking the camera and tilting it up and looking at it from the top instead of from the front. So I just looked at it like that. And I thought I thought that might go too. I thought that maybe, you know, drugs increase the feel good hormones in our body. And that's why we want to do them so often. So I thought sans drugs. I'd be sans humor, mm. but that's not, that's no. not the case at all. Yeah. Just, in, sorry, go ahead, John. No, no. Uh, in fact, I, fi I find myself making humor in more situations yeah. now than I did before. And I'm asking you this because, I mean, you've, you've been around us and me for quite a long time now, and, and I use humor as a, as a, a groundbreaking thing. I mean, I was giving you crap the first night you came in here, and sometimes I wonder how that's being perceived by the recipient, you know, and I'll say like, well, what high school did you go to? And they say whatever. And I'm like, well, that's why you had a drug problem. It's just, you know, people are like, well, dude, what are you talking about? But to me, it's just to get them to like break the, you know, the tension or whatever of coming into a place like this when there's a hundred people sitting in a support group meeting for the first time, you know? Um, and again, with the whole question of my wearing, are we going to wear pants today? That reminded me of your sense of humor um when did you start well no let's do this when you got asked uh to start facilitating our support group meetings how did you feel about that and what's that what's that um been like for you to do that here the first thing i felt was i was honored i was i thought um any any position that you are offered where you're able to distribute something that's going to help somebody else, yeah. even if that's just steering the ship in the right direction or offering words of encouragement when you may have said something difficult, anything like that to me is, is a marker of your success in your endeavor. So I felt like when I was asked to do that, that meant that I had reached at least a certain point of my recovery where somebody felt like now I had something to offer somebody else. And I'm not saying that I didn't have something to offer somebody before, mm -hmm. but now somebody has said, I think you know how to package that and give it to somebody else. That was the first thing that I thought. The second thing, mm -hmm. actually doing the meetings, um, first of all, the first time 
was just like me sitting across from that little guy right there. I was uncomfortable. Hmm. I was like, I don't, man, this is a lot of eyeballs. Like <laughs> when I share in a meeting, that's a temporary thing. And when I'm done, everybody looks away. My ears can go back to being normal colored and I can go back to a normal blood pressure. Yeah. But when you're up there, everybody's looking at you at the same time and all of your words are being analyzed critically. So if you say something wrong, somebody might carry that with them for the whole week. Somebody might carry that with them for who knows how long. Yeah. So now I have to very carefully approach how I say things. And I'm not always the most sugar-coated when it comes to my delivery. But one of the benefits of this program and the people in that room is they're here to take this seriously. Mm -hmm. And the bluntness of information mm -hmm. that comes from people here is normally readily accepted if the person that is being delivered to is here to take this seriously. 100%. Do you, what have you learned about yourself since you've been uh, facilitating those meetings? I learned that I love helping people. Um, I've always enjoyed doing several, several things. I love, I love construction. I love building things. I love taking a project and then having somebody's reaction when I'm done with it. That's a very gratifying thing. But I've never felt like that was my calling. I've never felt like, you know, every, everybody does their part on the earth. Everybody does a job and everybody does what they need to do. But to me, a uh, golf analogy, that's just par. Like yeah. that's just what we need to do in order for the earth to function as a normal society and move on as good as it can. I was looking for my birdie, hmm. my hole in one. I was looking for my what's extra, like what's going to make me feel like I'm doing my part and a little extra, like that little notch up. What am I going to go to work and love to do? What am I going to go home and be proud of having done? And when I was in those rooms, when I left, just a couple of times, somebody would come up afterwards and be like, hey, man, I loved what you, thank you. You really helped me out today. Yeah. And I'm like, my heart has just been filled with such joy for being able to give somebody else what was so graciously given to me. This is where I, I feel like the, the proud dad of yet another kid because for me I'm when I started this I I wanted to do what you just said right there and that's happened for a few people you know and now I get to step back and have other people take the role that I was doing before and watching them do it you know and that's another gift that I've personally been able to benefit from by watching people just simply get their lives together here is to go yeah look at that now he's doing what I used to do it's it's great do you so you've been very successful at that on a personal level and with helping other people when did you get the idea of man i want to turn this into i can have a job here and what's that been like what was the process and where are you with that so when i was in the military they offered us college for free so i took a lot of psychology classes and in psychology I learned a lot about how the brain operates, what causes psychological issues, and what makes people tick one way or the other. But I didn't ever actually have an application where that would be useful. I never wanted to be a high school counselor. God, I didn't want to be a high school counselor. And I didn't want to be a therapist. So I just kind of took those classes because they were free and it occupied my time. When I got into this field, well, when I got into this building, it had my first one-on-one -on -one and felt the impact of that, left that room yeah. like, man, I can't, like, I can't believe just having a conversation with another human for an hour is going to do me so much justice for so long. So at that point, the seed was planted. Like I kind of wanted to do this, but I felt like there were certain aspects of it I might not ever become comfortable with. Like being up in front of a room and also i anticipate failure i know that people are going to come into this program and not be successful and i was always worried that the weight of that failure mm. might be too heavy for me to carry so those two things were battling in my head all the time mm. 
But when I got back to doing houses and saw that without drugs, your finances don't have to be as hefty as you think. Like when I'm spending $150 a day on drugs, you know, this is like $1,000 a week. That's a $50,000 job just to pay for your drug habit. When they're gone and all you have to pay is rent and bills and you're still able to save money on top of that, I'm like, well, let's start let's start looking at something that maybe is quality of life and job satisfaction versus just because we talk about it here, mm-hmm. right? Like, does money equal happiness? Money doesn't necessarily equal happiness, but you need money mm-hmm. in order to live and be happy. Mm-hmm. So there is a threshold there that needs crossed, but once it's crossed, why not do everything in your power to make everything else in your life as good as it can be? So like you start to get some feel good. I got addicted to that. I got addicted to wanting to feel good for the rest of my life. And doing that through an emotional, mental means Mm. is the best gift that I've ever been given. So I, and I, I taught, I've been talking to Dan about where you are and stuff, but you're close to like coming on with us, right? Oh yeah. Um, I'm sorry. So this camera makes me black out a lot and I kind of forget like where I am in the middle of uh, answering a question that was in the queue and it just like fell off the back. That's okay. Um, I completed my CDCA yeah. programming or course. Yeah. And um, by the way, I got a hundred percent on all 13 sections. Awesome. Um, so all I need to do is just wait until I believe it's next week yeah. And then I can get my licensure from the state of Ohio and come on board here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, talk about the relationship you now have with your daughter. So that's been a fight. And um, a part of me wanted to be so mad at her mother for fighting me so hard mm-hmm. to see her. But a much larger part of me understands is like she saw the person that I was and wants to protect my daughter from that person. Mm -hmm. We don't speak to each other anymore. So she'll probably never know the person that I am and the parent that I'm capable of being. But for the last year in court, I had to fight. Mm -hmm. We went to a trial, like a legitimate full trial just for visitation. And I was awarded that May 4th. I just saw my daughter for the first time in three years a week ago wow and that was so i i went in trying not to have any expectations and um i didn't know how it would feel afterwards but i tried i i tried to anticipate some of the questions she would give me so that i could give her answers that were true but put in a vehicle a seven-year-old could understand. Mm. And when I went in there, none of the questions that I anticipated came up. None of what I thought was going to happen, good or bad, happened. And it was it was bittersweet. I have a lot of relationship building to do with my daughter, and I have a lot of time to do that. Mm-hmm. But I I take solace in the fact that I'm now the human being I need to be to be the father that she needs. Beautiful. Beautiful. And again, this comes back to the questions we were, or the topics we were talking about in the beginning with the military and coming into recovery, respect, honor, dedication, commitment. It's all applicable to what you're doing, not only with joining our staff, but improving the relationship with your daughter. It, they all, they all tie together. And that's another, I guess, I, another message I wish more people would really understand about what we're doing here, that it's it's more than just running or exercise. You know, it covers so many things that help people truly be themselves. Is there any question you want me to ask you? Um, I don't necessarily have any questions that I want you to ask me, but I want to I say something that I asked you when I first got here that had been has been very useful for me throughout my entire recovery and that was 
Are you ever aware of when your recovery is experiencing issues or do you know after a certain amount of time what what turbulence feels like in the force? Like uh, if you're starting to stray from your daily habits or your health routine or your mental exercises that you do to let yourself know that everything's going to be okay. And you said... I do, and the the experience that I have over the years with that is that in the back of my head, I know it's always going to be okay, but you're always going to have issues. You're always going to have things crop up that are going to need dealt with. The difference is now you deal with them, you deal with them with a, a hierarchy of treatments instead of ever reverting back to the way that you used to deal with them. Hmm. How was that? Obviously, that's helped you. Yeah, that's that's absolutely helped me because it let me know that no matter what, as long as you're mentally strong, as long as you take the tenets of this program and apply them to every aspect of your life, no matter. I had my sister die while I was in this program. I've lost friends to overdoses, yeah. and I've had a lot of family issues happen while I was in here. But never once did I ever consider. Yeah going back to solving those problems how I used to. And it's just nice to know that there's a, there's a floor that will catch you as long as you honestly apply yourself. I'm thinking, I'm looking behind you at the, our second book, There's More Than One Way to Get to Cleveland, and we have four big ideas, as you know, in that book. One, you can get off of drugs. Two, you can do anything when you stay off of drugs. But number three is the most critical. It's we're not immune to life's hardships. And this is what we're talking about here. When the turbulence comes, which is light, or uh, big idea number three, an, an emotional hardship, you get the opportunity to do four, which is not use over it and learn the things or apply the things that you learned here. And one of the things that I notice on a physical level, exercise is imperative, but I've learned down to a science and the day that I need to stop and start. When I do a physical event, I know I need rest. And that used to be something that I may have known and wouldn't apply, which would make the negative thoughts more intense. I've learned to not only take those times off, but understand that it's part of the healing process. It's almost like coming in here and understanding you have family issues that are going to take time, but knowing they're going to get better. And again, it's just understanding what the problem is, why the problem is occurring, and then how am I going to effectively use this? Some of this stuff, and I have so much respect for you and other people have joined the military. I would have loved to have done the mili- been in the military on those factors. I just didn't. I wouldn't have gotten past the haircut and I wouldn't like the time frame that they were doing some things. But some of those other factors that are in that are 100% applicable to what we're doing here in recovery. Um, any questions you want, you want to ask me? I, I do have one question I want you to ask me real quick. Oh, okay. Ask me what the most recent concert that I had tickets for. Now, I got postponed. But ask me what the most recent concert that I had tickets for. My girlfriend bought them for me, for us, a little while ago. But you, you probably... Jeff, I've been wondering to ask you this for so long. Um, and I just thought of this. Can you tell me what the uh, recent concert you were going to go see was? This is, this is an excellent question. <laughs> I don't know where you came up with it, but this is a good question. Good. Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Poison, and Joan Jett. And which city are you going to that in? It was supposed to be in Detroit on July 10th, but it got postponed. So we will be going to that together <laughs> because you will be working here and we will be going to that. Yes. So speaking, of, well, since I asked you that great question on my own, um, you were talking about the feel-good stuff earlier. And I wanted to say, well, is, is Dr. Feelgood your favorite Motley Crue song? Okay, so... The reason I brought this up to you is I used to, the reason you brought this up to me <laughs> is I used to give you a lot of crap about the questions always being about like Motley Crue or Def Leppard yep. or 
uh, Brett Michaels or something like that. Right. And I knew very little about those bands. So when I found out she had gotten those tickets, just like I do for anything else, I started studying. Started listening to um, songs by those bands and trying to like accurately identify when one of them would come on and stuff. Like um, Def Leppard just pour some sugar on me. Right? Yeah, that's one of their worst ones, but yeah, it's a oh. good one. Yeah, right. Never mind. We, you, I'll give you a pass on that one. Awesome. You and Eric have that in common. Yeah. This is so. What you're, what I hear you saying then is you found the most important thing in sobriety, and that's the love of Motley Crue. That's if that's number one, <laughs> then I'm up to number two right now. Okay. All right. I love it. I love on it. That one. No, we. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely go to that, and then when you see him there. You're going to just like in drug addiction or anything else. You're going to be like, Todd, where else can we go see these guys? And I'll say, Jeff, well, there's many cities in this beautiful country that you defended. Which one would you like to go to? I hear they're also in Cleveland July 3rd. Well, it was supposed to be July 3rd. I don't know if that got postponed also. We'll we'll be there probably too then. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Jeff, as I said, starting this, true honor to have you on here. And I, I say this to people and it probably doesn't make a lot of sense or mean much, but I'm truly proud of what you've achieved, and I am thankful that you're going to be joining our staff to help other people right shortly. Thank you. I'm thankful for this program and what you've built for us here. I say this all the time, and it's not a slight to you. You didn't get me sober. I love this. You gave me the framework to get myself sober. 100%. Best thing you said, well, second best thing you said after liking Motley Crue. Beautiful stuff. Um, Thanks for tuning in to watch this awesome success story of Jeff. Share it. Let other people know about Racing for Recovery. And if you're needing help, please contact us, 419-824-8462. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.